Lisa, it's been a tough week, but we're recording this the Friday after the election. How about that? Yeah. So uh, by the time listeners hear this, um, we'll be well after the end of the election and hopefully with some kind of resolution here in the U.S., Um, But you know what stuck out for me, actually, when thinking about this, well, a lot has stuck out for me because it's been a challenging week, but um, is the number of errors that there were in polling data again, right? Um, Mm -hmm. It didn't bear Mm -hmm. out like, like the pundits and like all those smart mathematicians said it would. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, and you know, that's my thing. I think I'm on uh, election and political overload. But I do think uh, there's something to be said about data and all the work that we do, especially in diversity, equity, inclusion. So let's talk a little bit about data. Let's talk about that today after the break. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So most people know that it's probably hit the, uh, the social media um, several different times. I also posted on my own page around an article that I wrote or co-authored with a couple of other Black female triathletes in Triathlete Magazine. And, you know, one of the things that we questioned as we were writing was the data and response rates when it came to diversity. Um, Who do people identify as and how much of that was reported? And so we knew that the percentages were low, especially when it came to race, because we were specifically writing about race and black triathletes. Where are they? But I think I questioned more just the low response rate. I think it was a little low, you know, it was around 20 something percent. And so it made me start to question organizations, all organizations that are Um, collecting data and making broad sweeping assumptions based off of incomplete data. And so I'm just, my my head is kind of foggy around that. I'm trying to figure it out. So I'm literally uh, talking this out live with you, Lisa, um, as I try to think through what does that mean for organizations? And are we leading them astray uh, based off of incomplete data data sets and uh, incomplete information from folks? Yeah, because you're saying if the kind of demographic survey of USA Triathlon, the response rate was in the 20%, right? And then of that 20%, a tiny percentage um, of folks identified as Black or African-American, it's not actually an accurate picture of their membership, right? Because the the original turnout was so, so low to uh, that kind of distorts the picture. Yeah, yeah. And so not to say that the population, because I still believe that the population is small, but how small? is what I want to get to. What's the accuracy of those numbers and how close can we get? And obviously we can't necessarily force everyone to respond. We mm-hmm. can't force everyone to um, to disclose their race or, or especially other demographics that are um, not seen with a visual eye. But, you know, I'm still thinking to myself, you know, is this dangerous? Is this irresponsible? Um, And we're not just picking on one organization. I could pick on a laundry list of organizations Mm -hmm. that um, collect data and then it's used a little bit uh, irresponsibly, I would say, simply because uh, there's no mechanism in place to make sure that as many people as possible respond so we can get an accurate um, picture 
um, mm-hmm. versus one that's really lacking. And so, you know, I'm just really concerned about are, are we, do we have a critical approach to data? Are, are mm-hmm. we critical enough when it comes to data? So, you know, have you experienced that with other organizations or, or is this just this particular organization we're speaking of today? No, I think I've experienced that with organizations I've done evaluation work for. I mean, they're um, ill-equipped to do evaluation, which is why they would ask me to assist them. But there's uh, that's a t- that's a tiny piece of the pie who are making mm-hmm. the request, right? So there are dozens and dozens, at least in my circle, right? We're talking probably thousands and thousands of organizations that don't even think about data collection. Um, and so I think yeah. there's kind of two pieces here, right? There's thinking about data collection and enacting data collection, but then when you get results from data collection, like doing something with it, but also having that critical eye that you just articulated, right? Um, but I, I mean, I think for a lot of organizations, and I wonder if this is particularly true in the endurance sports industry, that there's confusion or a lack of understanding about why we should even collect data. So I wonder if it would be helpful for us to go over some of the reasons why we think endurance sports organizations should think about enacting a, a robust evaluation or data collection plan. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, sometimes it's out of necessity, right? Sometimes it's, you know, let's say a race director or a race owner is trying to launch a new race in a new area um, of the state or of the country or in the world, and they need some type of business plan that requires these numbers. And so sometimes it's out of necessity. Um, but I think you and I are approaching the why question from a place of how can we increase the sense of belonging for folks that want to take part in endurance sports, maybe currently do take part in endurance sports, but don't feel welcome. Um, you know, I, I think that's kind of my driving force for why would you even collect information about um, athletes or about the climate that they're in when it comes to the actual, mm-hmm. uh, either the sport or the particular race or the particular area of the world. And so, you know, I think the big goal is to make sure people feel included and welcome. Um, but there's lots of different methods to the madness. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I think, you know, of course, when it comes to numbers and bottom line, you know, most race directors are looking at headcount, you know, how many athletes do we have here to make this event um, fun, safe and profitable. Um, And so, you know, they may just be hitting the headcounts, but what about other whys, other reasons to collect data? I think another thing that folks need to really consider is, you know, what are the needs of the athletes? You know, some of the needs they have might be quite different. So Lisa, this reminds me of um, maybe a couple of podcasts ago where we talked about, uh, (laughs) we just talked about nutrition for athletes on the course. And well, if you never do a needs assessment to ask the question, you know, what would you need on the course? What would you like to have on the course? I mean, we ask people what their t-shirt sizes for Christ's sake. Why, why couldn't we ask that um, upon registration? You know, what might you need? So, you know, maybe some type of needs assessment, whether it's um, as they're registering for the race or possibly yeah. even uh, post-race uh, needs are, are important, but how do you know if you don't ask? Yeah, I think that's such a key point, right? Because I, I think about this as a vegetarian, um, that um, uh, not the yeah. vegetarian, vegetarianism necessarily comes into play at an aid station in a race, but um, right. I'm thinking about people who are gluten-free, who have other, other dietary needs. You know, the more you expand your um, your numbers in your race, the bigger those percentages are going to be of people who have a particular dietary need. So are you accounting for that um, so that someone doesn't have an allergic reaction, right? Like there are tons of people with nut allergies. Like what are you doing to understand 
uh, and make sure that there are no you know, nut adjacent items um, Mm -hmm. on your aid station so that you don't send someone into anaphylactic shock. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, these little things that I think, you know, as a vegetarian, I'm always thinking about because I'm always in the minority when it comes to that dietary need. Mm -hmm. Um, But people who are in the majority, so meat eaters, folks who don't have any allergies, folks who don't, um, aren't gluten-free, like they're not thinking about that. So Mm -hmm. I think the food example, the aid station is actually really helpful um, when we think about needs and you have to ask the question, right? And mm-hmm. I think some people don't ask that question is because they're scared about what the answer will be and what that might commit them to, right? Ah, that's true. Yeah, because if you ask the question, then folks are like, they show up to the race and they're like, wait a minute, you asked me if I had a nut allergy, but you still have the peanut butter beside the, you know, <laughs> those questions start to to arise. So yeah, you do have a point that if you put it out there, you, you can't bring it back in. Um, so yeah, it does hold you to another, a level of accountability, but also a level of expectation of the athletes that mm-hmm. why ask if you, you know, why ask my t-shirt size, if you don't plan to have the size I need, right. why ask about my dietary needs, if you don't plan to have what I need there mm-hmm. as well. So yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And those kinds of needs assessment also speak to your point about belonging, right? About why we're thinking about the necessity of data collection in endurance sports, because Mm. You know, headcount doesn't tell you belonging, right? Headcount can tell you can tell you that you're increasing the number of women in your race, or you're increasing the number of um, Black and African American mm. athletes in your race, or Latinx athletes in your race. Doesn't mm. tell you anything about their experience. It doesn't tell you whether they're going to come back. It doesn't tell you if they experienced yeah. um, discrimination on the course, right? So yeah. you have to go beyond. Um, did you enjoy the race? Yeah. Right. And it, right. Well, yeah. And it, it tells you that they were there, but it tells it doesn't tell you anything about their experience. So and one of the things I'm thinking about is so after I believe this was after a lot of the Ironman races had been voted upon as far as, you know, athletes favorite and, and so forth. Um, there were all of these wonderful stories about athlete experiences, you know, folks where, you know, came back from cancer or I lost 200 pounds or, you know, I was uh, alcoholic and changed my life and all these wonderful stories about people's um, uh, personal redemption stories, I kind of call them. And so you're telling those stories. Well, it's very similar when it comes to the data. You want to know that information. I even remember when I registered for my first 70.3, they asked, first of all, they asked the question, is this your first 70.3? And then tell us something that would be important for us to know about you and your experience, something to that effect at the end. And that ended up being what they announced when I crossed the finish line. And so, you know, we're asking about stories in other ways. Why wouldn't we ask um, stories in these ways that help us to put on better races that make people feel more welcome. I think mm-hmm. it's doing the same thing in just a little bit of a different way prior to the race so that um, the event and the event planners mm-hmm. can be prepared for those folks. So, you know, I, I just, I see it all around us. Why aren't we doing it in very concrete uh, pointed ways for, mm-hmm. for athletes in particular? Um, but you're right. You know, did you enjoy yourself? That's a great question. And are we paying attention to the people that actually did enjoy themselves? <laughs> um, and sometimes the folks that didn't enjoy themselves don't speak up. Right. They don't say anything. And so all you get are the great stories. You don't get everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other piece then would, would be a reason to do evaluation is it also can tell you um, something about what you don't see. Right. So if you are, um, doing an evaluation of your participants of your event and, you know, it's 95% white people who respond. Right. So that tells you something, um, or, um, 
Absolutely. You know, you, you only hear the good stories, right? The likelihood mm -hmm. of 100% good story is minimal, right? Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, so you need to also look in the blank space too, I think, with assessment and evaluation, and that can help you improve your um, outreach, your production, which ultimately will improve your bottom line, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's a it's a great point, those blank spaces, because, you know, who doesn't respond to your survey overwhelmingly? Um, who doesn't tell their story? Um, I know it may feel good from a race director or event planner, or production manager. It may feel good to hear nothing but positive stories, but that doesn't mean that they were the only stories there. And so asking those follow-up questions or like, I would really be interested to see, for example, you know, some of the races that I do, especially in, in New Jersey. So, you know, shout out to Steve, Steve Delmo and Delmo Sports. Um, they have a large number of athletes that come back every single year for certain events. So like um, escape the cape where we jump off the ferry and swim back to shore to start the race well that's one where I encountered people that had been there every year for that event they kept coming back and so that's helpful but I would also love to collect data from the people that chose not to come back or maybe it was just you know it might be a good thing oh well this was just a bucket list once in a lifetime experience um, I remember the the one video that made me want to do that race was a woman from Mexico and she was scared out of her mind to jump um, 12 feet off of a ferry into 20 feet deep water in the Delaware uh, Bay. And, you know, the first thing she said was, I came all the way from Mexico to do this. And, um, and so it was just really profound to me. And the sports psychologist that's trying to talk her off as she's about to jump off says, okay, you can do this. You're representing your people. You're representing your country. You're going to have a great time. And three, two, one jump. And she did it. And, you know, it just reminds me, you know, there are lots of different reasons for people mm -hmm. to participate and also for people not to participate. But if we don't ask those questions, you know, did mm -hmm. the woman from Mexico ever come back <laughs> or was she very good with that one jump and that was okay? You know, we don't ask mm -hmm. those types of nuanced questions. And so there, therefore we don't get the answers to them. Yeah. That type of attrition is really interesting, right? Because I'm thinking with that race example, a reason to do some kind of long-term assessment would be that you, um, you look at who's coming back year after year and you actually then kind of target that group of people and ask them, you know, I noticed that you are returning to this race year after year. Why? And then you also look um, at the group of people that have, that have not re-signed up, right? So they sign up in 2018, but they don't in 2019. So then you, you know, you take a representative sample of that group and then you ask them and it could be, well, I just came this one time from Mexico, right? Or it also could be, well, I didn't have a really good experience and here's why. And the act of the race kind of targeting them and reaching out with a very specific message around, we noticed you didn't sign up again, actually can be quite meaningful both for the athlete, but it can also be very meaningful in helping the race and the, mm. or the event understand why they mm -hmm. lost that person. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm thinking about another race in particular that um, depending on how the data set shakes out, it could also demonstrate inequitable processes in just recruiting and or or registration. So for example, um, this was many moons ago. Um, a lot of folks know the very popular Marine Corps Marathon here in DC, where you're running through Northern Virginia, you get to run past all the monuments, etc. And so 
as a what's called a golden ticket for that race, um, a lot of people would run the uh, what's called the 1775, which was somewhat of a trail race that gave you the golden ticket for um, all access into the Marine Corps Marathon. So if you didn't make the lottery into Marine Corps, then you could run this prior race to get into the Marine Corps Marathon. Well, I even started thinking about that because the year that I did that, <laughs> it's funny, I had like three or four people set up at different computers and all right, whoever gets in first, because this is going to sell out quickly. The precursor race, the 1775 race, the year that I ran that sold out in seven minutes. And so it sold out in seven minutes, people registered, they ran that race. And then you have after you complete that race, they give you a golden ticket and you have like three days, maybe the weekend to register for the actual Marine Corps Marathon. Well, and I don't know the data, so I'm just making this up off the top of my head, but just thinking about equity, you know, if the same people are registering. So, for example, there are people that uh, have run at least five Marine Corps marathons, so they automatically get entry without having to go through the lottery system. So that's one block of registrations that are already sold out. Then you have folks that if they can get into 1775, great, they get it. So then you have even fewer slots for people that are in the lottery. And so then how many people are repeaters versus how many people have we created access for? And so even some systems, and I'm not saying it's a bad system, I'm just saying it deserves the question of how are we creating equitable systems so more people mm -hmm. can have access to these particular events? And so then we don't look up surprised. Oh, my goodness, mm -hmm. I cannot believe that diversity hasn't increased within these numbers. Well, of course they haven't, because the system that you've set up right. has created a repeater system for the same people with the same backgrounds and the same identities to continue to race and inadvertently block out other folks because of the process, not because of the individuals. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that would be another question as well. Um, when it comes to these data sets, or that could be questionable. Yeah. And something that you could benefit from looking over the long term, right? So you'd look at several yes. years, like for the amount of time that you've had that particular set of systems for entry, and then you would track what themes you're seeing, right? And that would also give you an indicator then mm -hmm. if you know, okay, so then the system is just perpetuating this narrow group of people yeah. who run the Marine Corps Marathon. Yeah, yeah, because if you have, you know, let's say that your permit uh, for the city allows you to have 30,000 runners. So the year that I ran it was about 30,000 runners. If you have 30,000 runners, but out of the 30,000 based on the registration processes, maybe only 5,000 of the 30 are open to anyone then of course you're going to have the same runners every year and it's not going to expand. And so, you know, uh, this gets into what we've talked about many, many times, you know, this is how systems work. This is how systems that gridlock people out of systems work. And so, you know, given that, I think it's something to consider. Um, and then I think too, you know, when it comes to data, are we, <laughs> are we looking at what we hope is happening versus what is actually happening, because I think we hope that more people register for XYZ race and we create access. But what's actually happening is that you have this group that want in, but they can't get in because you've set up a system that disenfranchised them. Um, and so, yeah, the the systems piece, data could speak to the system experience of mm -hmm. folks that they don't even realize is happening. It's almost like that software running in the back of your computer. Mm -hmm. You know, athletes don't know that's running in the background. They know some of the system, but um, to what extent do they really know the system? Eh, not as right. much as an event coordinator. Yeah. And then I'm also thinking like shifting from races or events, um, there's also the organization itself that can benefit from internal 
data collection about its employees and their experiences mm. and its recruiting yeah, yeah. practices, right? And what themes are you seeing there? So you could get numbers and you could also get narratives. Um, and yes. that would yes. speak to systems. Like, are your recruiting systems constantly recruiting the same type of person? Um, and then what is the experience of people in your organization? You can do that through kind of narrative answers, right? And there are some challenges around that if you're trying to understand senses of belonging and kind of cultural environment, particularly for marginalized groups, and you have one woman and one person of color on your staff, right? Like you have yeah. to be cautious about how you manage an assessment process there. So those folks feel that they can talk freely without being called out. Yes. Um, yes. It's hard to be anonymous when you're the only one That's in right. an organization, That's right. but you know, there That's are right. tools to assist you with that for, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but if you really mm -hmm. want to be committed to equity and inclusion and you want to both have a more diverse staff and then you know that reflects outwards to your participants um mm. then you got to do that internal assessment right and you have yeah. to do that with humility as mm. well i think that can be very mm -hmm. instructive mm -hmm. well and you know here's here's the rub with that it so I've encountered even several organizations that do outward facing DEI work quite well, but then when it comes to the inward facing workplace culture, internal operations, equity, policy, procedure, all of that stuff, it's a bunch of crap inside, you know, it's, it's like window dressing or, you know, curb appeal, like everything looks good from the outward facing. And in fact, the services they provide can even be fantastic. But then when they look at how they operate internally, those are two different conversations. And I think, you know, sometimes the internal workplace culture that you're mentioning gets hijacked if and when an organization is really doing good outward facing work in that. So for example, you know, if you're a really fantastic organization and you have provided wide widespread access to diverse populations, but yet your internal staff is not diverse at all, then there's a disconnect there. But you can uh, um, kind of divert people's attention to the inward facing stuff because the outward facing stuff looks so good. And so, you know, I wonder how that kind of plays into, mm. you know, the, uh, the inward facing operations of an organization and even the trepidation around mm -hmm. not collecting data around this stuff at all. Like there, there's some fear around that because it's, it's telling it's, it's almost like an expose, you know, it's, it's revealing things that maybe the organization, number one, doesn't know exists, which can be embarrassing. But once they do realize it exists, it, it requires them to do something about it. <laughs> once you know, yeah. you got to do something about it at that point. Yeah, because if you don't do anything about it, then it's like willful neglect, right, of something yeah. that you're aware, yeah. for, aware of. And I do think much like on the individual level, and we've talked about this before, that um, part of this process of you know, understanding kind of the structural nature of oppression broadly is self-reflection and understanding the ways in which you benefit from structural oppression, like the ways in which mm. you kind of implicitly hold up those systems and how you can actively and knowingly like let go um, and uh, work for change. And so I think similarly, organizations need to focus on the infrastructure and the internal because I would guess there's probably few endurance sports organizations that are excellent on um, diversity and inclusion externally and awful on it internally. I think mm -hmm. that you, mm -hmm. if you're not great on it internally, the chances are you're not great on it externally either. So if your entire staff is made up of white women, like you might have the best of intentions, but my guess is 
because your staff is made up of the same group of people, you're probably not thinking um, about all the ways in which you need to do better. And then if you're also not doing any evaluation Mm. or assessment, it's compounding the problem. Um, And I've actually worked for an organization that um, had the situation that you just articulated. It wasn't a diversity related situation, but the leader of the organization was hired to raise the profile um, externally, right? Mm -hmm. And that person did that, did a really good job, um, raised the profile nationally of this organization, but completely neglected the internal. So while the external was being raised, the internal infrastructure and all the people that were kind of working um, in the organization, that started to fall apart right? Like mm-hmm. it was inconsistent. It was unfair. Mm-hmm. There were in, there was infighting, there was disrespect. There were total issues around discrimination yeah. based Insta- on race and gender. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, that they're still paying for that mistake. Wow. Oh yeah. my gosh. Incredible. So, well, that tells us, you know, that's a great example of what can happen if you don't do that inward facing data collection, whether it's quantitative, qualitative, whatever method you want to choose, you know, that tells you what happens. Um, and so, you know, and I think sometimes there's a lot of excuses around, you know, why not to do it, you know, so um, we don't have the money for it. We don't have the people that we can dedicate to that work. And so, um, you know, even when people create a strategic plan, even if it's a strategic plan, that's like an overarching plan that includes diversity, equity, inclusion, if someone draws the attention to the assessment piece. Sometimes the assessment piece and the data collection is kind of constricted because they're like, yeah, I would love to know all that information too, but that requires the expenditure of more staff, more money, more time, more, more, more. And so they sometimes choose to constrict the amount of assessment because they Mm -hmm. don't want to make those types of investments. And so then what ends up happening, going back to the top of the show, we end up using relatively incomplete information because we didn't put that investment in from Mm -hmm. the beginning. And so, you know, they're trying to save, but they will actually pay one way or another. They're going to pay. Yeah. They're going to pay. Yeah. If you're thinking about long-term growth of your organization, of your event, of your race, right. Mm -hmm. It does behoove you to implement a fairly structured evaluation plan um, of both the internal and the external and invest the time and resources to do that because it will pay off, right? And I would also argue that you need to do more than just numbers, right? So like you said, the quantitative piece, the numbers piece is helpful, but you need that qualitative, that narrative, that individual experience piece to complement those numbers because numbers tell a piece of the story, right? And certainly numbers can be manipulated. And I think that we do see that happening, Um you know, like if you're presenting, yeah. you know, this many people out of our membership agree with this, but you only got 12% of your membership to respond, then that's actually yeah. a little, that's uh, not accurate. Yeah. Yeah. That's very misleading. It can be very misleading. Well, and then, well, that brings, brings us to another point that I appreciate is that at least they looked at the data. I mean, there's, there's some organizations that collect the data, then they do nothing mm-hmm. with it. They put it in mm-hmm. a pretty report or they pay someone like you and I to do it. And then they put it on a shelf. They may yep. throw it over to the board of directors and say, hey, glance at this, but it's not a priority. And then they don't do what, what we would call any formative work mm-hmm. with it. They don't use it to form what they're going to do in the future. And therefore, it's just a, a performance. You know, it's just, yes. you know, tap dancing across the stage to say, well, we've done rigorous data collection. And it's like, Ugh, I don't care how rigorous it is. If it's not being used, then what was the point of wasting your money to do it? And so, mm-hmm. you know, then that really becomes a challenge because, 
you know, once again, making decisions without accurate, full information, you know, making these broad sweeping decisions that actually affect people's lives. And so, you know, this is something to really consider too. Like, you know, let's, let's, (laughs) let's not be lazy with the data. Let's not be lazy with, you know, data collection and then um, doing Mm -hmm. it as part of a performance. um, Yeah that just kind of, you know, what's the least amount we can do with the data, but at least we can say we did it. Uh. Yeah. And I think that's particularly connected to the diversity committee, right? Uh, Like the diversity committee is this, (laughs) is this performance of we're doing something in this area, right? So the Mm -hmm. data collection strategies around diversity often Mm -hmm. come out of diversity committees, but then both the data collection recommendations and the diversity committee recommendations are provided to leadership and then crickets, right? Nothing actually happens. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Nothing happens. Right. Nothing happens. Well, and and I think what's interesting about it is, again, we're treating data collection as if it's a silver bullet, one and done. Once you've done it, you don't have to do it again. I mean, even the doggone U.S. Census, which I have major challenges with, they still do it every 10 years. Let's think about organizations that are much um, that are much more, I don't even want to say volatile, that's not the right word, but it evolves over time based off of the market, based off of those that are interested in all three sports. And so, you know, it's an ongoing iterative process. And I I think, again, just like a lot of other things, DEI related, folks want to put data on this to-do list that they can easily check off and not have to revisit. Um, You know, this is one of those things that's a a permanent to-do on the to-do list, especially if you're a leader of an organization, Mm -hmm. you permanently revisit it. I mean, you know, you don't just ask for you know, a budget report once in 10 years, and then you don't look at it again. Most folks that are fiscally prudent with their business, they look at it relatively often. Mm-hmm. Why would we not do the same thing with with data that we collect about the people that are, you know, spending their really hard earned money, time, um, and sometimes their livelihood doing a sport that can be dangerous? You know, why would we not value lives and the lived experiences of folks, right. You know, without doing this work, I I think it just, again, it just, let's check it off and move on to the next thing. No, we're not going to move on to the next thing. This is a thing. That's a continuous thing um, that we have to continue to invest Mm -hmm. in in many different ways. Yeah. The continuous piece, the iterative piece is certainly a philosophy that I uh, stick to when I'm doing evaluation and assessment for organizations. And I, um, I use a lot of uh, kind of uh, tenets from action research, which is like an academic thing, but essentially what that means is you just have this ongoing circular process where you do assessment, you see what's happening, and then you make changes on the fly, right? And it's this continuous circular mm-hmm. process. And I think that mm-hmm. endurance sports could really benefit from um, thinking about data collection and evaluation in that way. And so it's not like six weeks, we're going to collect all this data, then we have a report. And then maybe we do something with it, right? It's this ongoing over a long period of time because that means you're constantly attempting to improve both inst- internally mm-hmm. and externally. And you're not just kind of pulling ideas out of thin air, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're um, embedded in what you're collecting, what your customers, what your athletes, what your staff are saying, you know, mm-hmm. and you can back it up with research if you want to, because that's, there's tons of that out there. I mean, you know, you have a whole internet at your disposal. Yeah, um, that's true. Yep. To look at what's happening and you can develop best practices. I mean, you could even mm-hmm. be on the, on the cutting edge, right. Mm-hmm. As an organization in endurance sports, if you're using data wisely. Um, yeah. I have yeah. an example of an organization years ago that I had approached to see if they would share some data with me around gender. They're collecting mm-hmm. a lot of data, right. And I was, um, 
interested to see whether, um, so they make um, coaching recommendations. So individual athletes will contact them um, because they want to coach and they have a matching process. And I was curious to see the percentage of matching they made to women coaches versus men coaches. And also in terms of the requests from athletes, you know, based on the athlete's gender, did they have a preference for a coach or Mm -hmm. was there some kind of um, something happening in the background, some unconscious bias around, you know, over recommending male um, Mm -hmm. coaches. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I got, in a little bit and had a conversation with the CEO about getting it. And then he just stopped responding to my emails. Right. So that's telling. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So that, that tells me that perhaps there's something there. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I look, I've, I've taught courses on assessment work in higher education. And one of the things that I tell my students, my mentees all the time and not to get too academic, but always pay attention to what the data doesn't say pay attention to the asterisk at the bottom of the report. Pay attention when they say, oh, well, this percentage was too small to report. Well, okay, I I need more information concerning that. Why don't we ask these questions? Why don't we ask this information? you know, I, I served on a, at a university many years ago, and they always had race and gender. But, you know, looking at sexual orientation, for example, you know, there was a fear of collecting that data, but then um, expecting a professional in LGBT studies, et cetera, to do that work with no data to support who they're serving, how many they're serving, how they're going to serve them, how they have served them over time literally on the fly, literally. And I challenged it because I said, wait a minute, we haven't done that with race and gender in this organization. So why are we expecting someone that is tasked to support individuals from minoritized sexual orientations? Why would you task them to do something without any, it's almost like, you know, helping a ghost, like we used to say, it's like you're trying to support a group that you can't even validate is there. Well, the group is there. It's clear that they're they're there, they're functioning, they're asking for the support, but you're not giving someone the mechanism to, number one, you know, headcount, uh, but number two, to also think about, you know, what are the nuanced needs of those individuals because they're not a monolith either. And so, you know, I just think it's it's crucial to look at the, you know, re- literally reading b- between the lines, what's not being said, what's being left yeah. off, what questions mm-hmm. aren't being asked um, and challenging that. And so, you know, I jokingly say all the time, you know, institutional research, you know, they hate to see me coming because they know I'm going to ask a question that the data hadn't answered already. And so, you know, given that it's important to note. So, you know, you say we have less than 1% uh, indigenous populations uh, in this organization. Well, which ones are here? Because it's clear that we have a percentage. Well, Mm -hmm. who who's here? What tribes are present? Did you ask that question at all? And so, you know, I, I think it's important to to query the the data in very real ways with mm-hmm. an equity mindset around who's being excluded and and 
we're being we're being conditioned to be okay with individuals being excluded, right? So right. how many how many reports have you and I, Lisa, looked at, especially in the work that we do? How many of them have we looked at where there was just simply an asterisk for indigenous populations and then no one asked the question, okay, we know they're here, that may not mm-hmm. rise to your level of 1%, but we still want to know who's here. I want a more detailed report. Folks yeah. just kind of gloss over and say, oh, it's okay, let's move on. Mm-hmm. I don't want yeah. to move on. Right. <laughs> I don't want to move on. Yeah, yeah. And I think that level of nuance is so important and it does take time. It does take a critical eye, like you had said, but um, mm-hmm. what it can yield is a much more welcoming environment, uh, workplace, event, race, organization, whatever, right? If you're actually taking mm-hmm. the time. And mm-hmm. I, I think about um, that USA Cycling membership survey that I filled out. Remember, it was my micro allyship thing. I have not heard from them. Um, oh, and yeah. they had messed up um, gender, right? They had included intersex in gender identity uh, incorrectly. And so um, I wonder, I, I think it perhaps was a genuine mistake, but it, it was a, a mistake that could have been um, resolved if they had done their homework a little bit more, or asked an expert about it. Mm-hmm. But that does send a message, um, even if the population is very small, right? Mm-hmm. You have sent a message there that this organization doesn't understand um, and that doesn't understand the context or the needs. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Well, and so Lisa, let's, let's get down to the nitty gritty of things. If I'm that race director or I'm that event producer or whatever I am in the industry, then, okay, let's say I've done everything that you and I have suggested, you know, I've collected the data, I've spent the money, I called in the experts, I did all the things, then how do I know that anything I'm doing is actually chipping away at the challenges around DEI? Like how, how do I know that I'm actually being successful in the work? Um, And, you know, sometimes that remains to be seen, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes it's almost a requirement to look at that longitudinal, you know, the sets of data over many years. Um, Mm -hmm. But I do think that we can see some incremental changes as well. I think, I think part of it is that we can't just stop at the head counting. You know, we can't say, okay, well, how many? Okay, good. We're straight. Keep it moving on to the next thing. Um, I I do feel the need for the nuance. It's just a matter of how much nuance do we want to have and how going back to the the top of being phased, what would be the phased approach Mm -hmm. to continue to bring up data in ways that are increasingly more nuanced? Because we're not expecting somebody to come in here as a statistician the first year um, or, or even the first few years. But, you know, what would be the incremental measures of success using this data that they've worked so hard to collect. I mean, one of the things I recommend organizations do is kind of determine like, what is your, what is your end game, right? Um, what is it that you want to change and then develop mm, yeah. as a team, develop um, signposts, like, so outcomes would signposts yeah. along the way. So what are those mm-hmm. kind of like incremental um, markers of success that you would hope to see? Um, because it's harder to measure that long game, right? Because that's usually like a big thing, like in the nonprofit world, like that's usually like huge social change, right? End mass incarceration, right? That like, that's hard to measure whether the work you're doing is having an effect on that. So you develop these steps. And so as a team, as an organization, you should come together and say, how do we know we're on the right path? And then that's what you constantly assess right? Mm-hmm. So every year you have these outcomes, these signposts, and that's what you're constantly assessing. And they, they are nuanced to a point, right? Because they mm-hmm. are getting at um, experience. And then 
Um, you need to be looking at attrition. You need to be looking at who's not coming back, um, yeah. who's not yeah. responding to our surveys. Um, how can we increase the number of people responding to our surveys? What incentives can we offer? What reminders can we send? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that would be my recommendation is thinking about it rather than this like insurmountable um, mountain um, yeah. of mm. data that you have and you don't know what to do with is to develop more incremental outcomes and then continue to measure those as time passes. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I agree with you. Just the the incremental your the visual that came up for me as you were talking was literal mile markers. <laughs> I mean, it's like, oh, yeah, we're getting there. Yeah. We're getting there. Um, but yeah, those mile markers and, you know, kind of assessing the progress because it, it can be frustrating if you don't think that you're seeing or or feeling or experiencing progress around this. But there there can be some uh, some, some folks see it as a scorecard or, you know, mile markers, things like that. But yeah, I do think there's, um, we can break this big thing down into small things. Um, but, you know, I think the first step <laughs> to all of that is embracing the fact that data is crucial. Nuanced data is important. It should be, yeah. you know, part of your, you know, business plan, strategic plan, whatever it is, it, it should be part of the work that you mm-hmm. do. Um, and, and not to just say, oh, well, you know, I, I'm either not well versed in that area, or I'm not quite sure where to begin. There's so many different resources. There are people out here like us that can support you in that. But to just cast it aside to say, and, and really, it gets down to we talked about this before, Lisa, around centering, you know, who are yeah. we centering here? Yeah. And so I think sometimes e- even for myself, if I say, oh, I don't need to look at that data set or I don't need to pull that up because I feel like my experience and my opinion is strong enough to steer an organization, a group, a committee, et cetera. And that's just not true. And that's mm-hmm. dangerous, in fact. And so, um, you know, I think that data requires folks not to center themselves and to center other people's experiences so that then the organization can speak directly to everyone's experience and not just the person that's in power that can make decisions. And that's a hard pill to swallow for people that are used to doing what they want to do based on their own experience, not having to think about others. Um, Going back to your point about not having cultural humility because, you know, we think that our culture is the dominant and primary culture Mm -hmm. and it's just not. And so I I do think that data requires us, uh, maybe data is relatively synonymous with cultural humility in this case, where you have to humble yourself to say, I don't know everyone's experience because it's not exactly like mine. So let's, let's look at this data set and and let it give us direction. Let it speak to us um, in Mm -hmm. the ways that we need to move forward. Yeah. And even if a majority of your respondents are saying things are great, but you have, you know, 15% of your respondents are saying things aren't great. You can't just brush that aside. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And yeah. that's hard. That's, that's hard. That's hard to hear, certainly. Mm-hmm. But it will strengthen your race, event, organization, workplace. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess our, you know, because we're both educators at heart, we have to think about what our micro allyship homework will be um, until we see each other again or, or chat again. And so, you know, I think for me, my micro allyship homework will be to more proactively question data sets mm. when I receive them or mo- more proactively question the numbers um, and have someone to explain them to me. I am not a statistician. <laughs> um, however, I, I ask really hard questions about that. And I need to do that more often outside of my field. I think I need to right. do it in other ways. So like, you know, even look, I was thinking about this earlier, Lisa, about um, 
you know, who I patronize and where I buy things from. So, you know, I now want to know, you know, how many minority owned or woman owned businesses am I buying from even for my Mm -hmm. household products, because I want to know how many folks they're serving, how many of them are out there. Um, And so how can we continue to, you know, use data in everyday life um, Mm -hmm. to question who's being represented and who's not being represented in all that we do? I I, I think I can challenge myself to do that a bit more over than the next week or so. Yeah, me too. And I would do it. I want to, you know, just piggyback off of that and say, yes, I'll do that too. And I also think all those surveys, customer feedback surveys that we get Mm. through our email or we get asked to do is applying a more critical eye to what's missing from those surveys and then providing that gentle feedback that perhaps they might want to incorporate this question or these questions. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we're, so we're going to be the, um, we're going to be the, the troublemakers that stir the pot when it comes to the data, because, you know, there's, first of all, there's no survey that's perfect. That's, that's the first thing, but going back to that iterative process, how can we challenge organizations to do better with, their inclusive work when it comes to these numbers, these stories that need to be told um, that may not uh, be told otherwise if we don't challenge it. So we got some work to do, Lisa, as always. Yeah, as always. I think we should end, (laughs) I think we should end with um, your comment that you made to me before we went on air about the phrase or the. um, Oh my goodness. Yes. Well, you know, in my, in my community, you know, if someone borrows money from you and you need to get it back, you let them know, look, you need to run me my money. You you need to bring my money back. And, and I feel the same way about Mm -hmm. data and information about people is that many of us are willing to share our experiences and, you know, even our backgrounds and so forth. and, And we give this away freely um, to organizations. And we're like, okay, now I want to know what the aggregate is, right? Run me my data on all this. I want to know all of it. I want to ask more questions, more deep and nuanced questions. So, you know, I'm excited for people to be like, look, go back to your organization, go back to your local race director, go to whomever and say, look, run me my data. I want to see the data. I want to see what's really going on mm-hmm. and get a better landscape of what's going on outside of my own personal experience. And I think once we start making that a norm of even mm-hmm. asking that question, then we're really going to start moving moving that needle and, and um, hitting those mile markers a little more quickly, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you heard it here first, run me my data, and then also get receipts. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. All right. Until next time, Lisa. All right. See you soon, right. Shauna. Bye. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time. <laughs>